fast forward to 1978. Monster Manual, Player's Handbook. Those two come out, Monster Manual first, but I get the Player's Handbook and I go, oh, ah, everything I'm writing in the realms, I now quietly use this as the skeleton. Because No kidding. The Monster Manual is really cool because it gives us all the monsters exactly what they do, how powerful they are, their, what they do, how they're ranked against each other in effect. Okay, they work. This is the mechanics of monsters. The Forgotten Realms setting is ingrained in D&D, and it's easy to forget someone created it. I talked to Ed Greenwood about how he went from a five-year-old boy reading pulp novels in his father's library to being the father of Elminster and Waterdeep. You can hear the joy he finds in his work, and we dig into his writing process and his perspective on writing. Stick around until the end when we talk about his newest work on the Fate of Norns RPG. A special thanks goes to our newest patrons, Fabian Picart, Sam Ius, Peter Thomas, William Payne, Isaac Turton, and Aidas. Because of them and the 100 plus other supporters on Patreon, I can bring you content every week. Okay, sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with Ed. Do you love to unplug and play games around the table? Greetings, friends and floorheads to Tabletop Talk from Third Floor Wars. If you love tabletop gaming, you are in the right place. Listen as Craig delivers in-depth discussions and interviews with game designers, creators, insiders, and experts. Learn from the people making and playing the role-playing, miniature, and board games you love. Howdy, friends. Craig here. Today, we're talking to author Ed Greenwood. Ed may be best known for creating the default D&D setting of Forgotten Realms. Since then, he has published over 170 books, selling millions of copies worldwide in multiple languages. Ed, welcome to the third floor. Hi, thank you for having me. Hello. I appreciate <laughs> Hello, everybody. <laughs> Hi, I'm so, there. <laughs> So, Ed, a good bit of your life has been spent dealing with tabletop gaming and, of course, writing in the fantasy genre. But there was a day where you didn't know either existed. So I'm wondering if we can go back to that time. And I'd love to find out, like, what was your first exposure to either uh, the fantasy genre or tabletop gaming? Hmm. Well, <clears throat> I was a um, uh, what the one of those things they call um a prodigal prodigy whatever uh, <laughs> uh yeah, yeah it's it's obviously lasted you know uh but but um i was i was reading when i was 4 and 5 years old and i no was kidding. reading my way through my father's den and my mom died when i was 6 and i was uh raised by a succession of grandmothers and maiden aunts so um and I was the oldest child, and the two younger children were my sisters. So they had each other, and I right. had my father's den full of books to immerse myself <laughs> in. And my father, like all people who collected books, because uh, my father was serving with NATO and radar stuff, so he was away, like across an ocean a lot of the time. Yeah. And I'm sure after my mom died, he sort of threw himself into that. 
you know, um, um, looking back. Uh, but uh, I was left alone with his books. And like most people who collect books, he built his own bookshelves so he could cram the maximum amount of those suckers <laughs> in there by size. So everything was sorted by size. And <laughs> The High White Forest, a novel of the Battle of the Bulge by Ralph Allen, which was fascinating to a young kid because it has three pages in a three successive pages of a class full of Germans, fictional Germans in the book, who are going to be sent behind allied lines being taught the F word so they can swear <laughs> and sound like an American. And a Nazi SS officer has arrived to inspect the class. So the teacher is showing off and everybody's trying for gawk, for yawk, you know, for three pages, trying That's to sound phenomenal. like, yeah, yeah. So that was right next door to a first edition Lord of the Rings because they were exactly wow. the same height. So I, and I read everything, including I mean, my father had, you know, proceedings of the IEEE, which is something to do with international en engineers. OK. And he had all this radar stuff, the source of radio source and Cygnus X1 and so on. I devoured everything. The stuff that was boring, you know, uh, and he also had a good old hardcover book called The Complete, P-L-E-A-T, Complete Strategist, which was a game theory book from way back when. Anyway, he also had tons and tons of um, give one to a friend in uniform mystery paperbacks, the, the, the Dell map backs, you know, the, the little map of the scene of the crime on the back, and, and tons and tons of early uh, fantasy and science fiction and magazines, pulp magazines. So I didn't know what genres were at that stage. I just read everything. And I would go pounding up the stairs to my dad, usually when he had a house full of, you know, five-star generals and stuff, and I'd say, <laughs> "Dad, Dad," and I and I'd be holding something terribly embarrassing, like a a, a, a forty-cent paperback called "Oh Hoot Trail." She was staked out nude in the sun to die. <laughs> uh, What's the cover? You know, and I'd wave right. it at him and say, "Dad, Dad, this was great. Where's the next one?" Oh, that's great. And my father would say something like, "Oh well, son, you know." <clears throat> If you want a sequel, you're going to have to write it yourself. That author died in 1943. Oh, okay. Fine, Dad. And I go running back downstairs to his vast relief, no doubt, and into the den, where on the card table, my Aunt Clara, like all farmhouse wives and farm girls who grew up during the Depression, had saved every brown paper bag that we got from the supermarket. Because of course, you know, we shopped at the supermarket, brown paper bags. You slit them up the sides and you ironed them flat on the ironing board and you gave them with crayons and pencils to the kids as writing paper because you're not going to pay for writing paper. Now, right. later on, I, I discovered that my dad, being a prof, had all these exam books that he brought home from university, the unused ones, and they yeah. all looked the same and you had to write in the exam book and he had to destroy them. The problem was... He'd also gone up through the Depression. You do not destroy stuff. So anything blank, he had to make sure it vanished so a, a, a bad student couldn't take blank examination books home and write the right. exam and then slip it in. Um, but he could not bear to waste things, you know, because 
as my aunt Claire used to tell everybody, including taxi drivers and and uh, meat cutters <laughs> at the supermarket, if you waste that, Mister Hitler will win the war. Oh, good lord! <laughs> Isn't that something? <laughs> Even at well after Second World War, but I mean, this was rock firm. You know, she would tell members of parliament, you know, elected officials, oh, I'm very disappointed in you. You wasted something. If you do that, Mr. Hitler will win the war. Oh, that's And they amazing. would look at her and they'd try and crack up and they realized she's serious. Well, <laughs> and it was great because it gave me this rock solid values for life. You don't waste things. Anyway, so here I was writing on all this brown paper and I would I would copy authors I liked. And my dad had very, what they call small C Catholic reading tastes, as in he read right. everything. So I was reading Lord Dunsany, Kipling, P.G. Woodhouse, Abraham Merritt, Seabury Quinn, Robert E. Howard, um, J.R. Tolkien. They were all cheek by jowl. And I would just write a pastiche, a copy. What would happen next to the characters? Right. And most of my writing was really lousy, and I'm glad it has not been. <laughs> but I was learning the best way of writing. I was learning style, good and bad, because some of them were like, no, oh, reader, that in the time of which I write, oh, let me digress. Here's a footnote on top of a footnote on top of a footnote. So we all understand where we are. And, and you know something? You read that, and some of them, you get tied in knots, and some of them you think, Hey, that's really good. We should still write like that because it was quite clear. I mean, if if I was being taken by the hands through a mass textbook, I'd love it if somebody stopped and said, you might be wondering about this Pythagorean theorem. OK, let's stop and talk about Pythagoras. You know, I would love that. But anyway, um, I would write all this stuff. So I was writing um, incredibly bad stories and novels by the time I was five. So the first Forgotten Realms short story, I was f five or five and a half when I wrote it, and it still survives. Um, well, okay, it's been uh, put together with some fragments that I also wrote at the same time, and it, it's called One Comes Unheralded to Zerta. And I, I gave it away as a free chapbook at an early Gen Con, and later on, it was published in my, you know, Best of Eddie, Best of the Realms volume, whatever, which was me. First first Best of the Realms, I think, was Bob, and I, uh, Bob Salvatore. And I was number two, and then Lane Cunningham was number three. Um, we each got our own book. So it's in there. You can read it if you if you want to subject yourself to. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> everybody was in it um, because it was oh, a sort no of kidding. travelogue. But the Forgotten Realms started a decade before D&D. &D. I, I don't was think writing, I knew that. Uh, I was writing short stories about Mert, the moneylender. And Mert was a copy of Falstaff by Shakespeare, Nicholas Van Rin, um, Paul Anderson's Pulsotechnically traitor, um, and Guy Gilpatrick's Glen Cannon. Um, Guy Gilpatrick wrote a series of short stories in men's magazines um, about... Well, not that sort of men's magazines. Uh, uh, about uh, this drunken Scottish engineer on a tramp steamer sailing all over the world, merchant trading. Well, he was always down in the engine room because he was the engineer. And he was drinking Duggan's Dew of Kirkentillock. And he was um, swindling 
people in various ports out of parts for engines to keep the thing going and oil anyway all that stuff so i put these three mashed these three characters together and ended up with his wheezing fat food all down his front floppy sue boots um guy who used to be conan okay like Interesting. 30 years ago and now he's out of breath he can't outrun anybody he can't outfight anybody so he has to outwit <laughs> everybody and what happens is the end of each short story the enemies he had at the beginning of the story he's swindled or beaten and they're after him he's made new enemies and they're after him <laughs> and the authorities in whatever port city he's in are also after him so he leaves town and the story ends and he was going from port city to port city along what a year later i i figured out was the sword coast and a year after that i figured out it was called the Forgotten Realms. Now, the, the setup for the Forgotten Realms is because we have legends in our world of vampires and dragons and wyverns and stuff, but you don't see them when you walk down the street or in zoos. And the, the conceit is, and I swiped this from William Morris and everybody else has swiped it from him since, from C.S. Lewis with the line in The Witch in the Wardrobe, all the way down to Michael Moorcock and the multiverse and everybody since. Um, William Morris wrote the first novels. And the first things we now look back at and say, that's a novel. Um, as well as, you know, being this Renaissance designer who gave us beautiful wallpaper and furniture and music and carpets and everything. Uh, and one of them was called The Wood Between the Worlds. And the idea is there's this vast wood. And if you're in this vast wood, which is populated by satyrs and fauns and all sorts of dangerous people who found their way from other worlds, because if you step between two trees when the moonlight's shining on them or over a pool or across the stepping stone in exactly the right direction at exactly the right time, like on the solstice, you know, because... I say this because it's the solstice. Anyway, uh, uh, if, if that happens, um, you go through a gate. You don't splash into the pond. You step into another world. And I just said, okay, so there used to be lots of gates. Well, there still are lots of gates between our world and this other world, which I called the Forgotten Realms because we've forgotten how to get there. So therefore, the traffic has stopped. It isn't so much we've forgotten as, and I borrowed this later on from Philip Jose Farmer, um, the, his World of Tears series, where the Bellers and so on, where there are gates, but you have this shadowy power group that controls them because they get rich on taking substances, trade goods, from one item, one world to another, and they don't want anybody else using the gates. <laughs> so they trap them or they guard them with monsters or they come after you if you know about the gates and they eliminate you. Um, and that, of course, later, Philip uh, Jose Farmer later inspired Roger Zelazny with the Amber books. Um, and I was reading all this fantasy and just loving it and writing all these horrible pastiches of fantasy. <laughs> and at the same time, Lynn Carter, now no longer with us, Linwood Vrooman Carter, uh, he was doing the same thing, except professionally. He was writing horrible pastiches of everybody he loved, um, particularly his own um, books, uh, his, his early books uh, about Thongor, which were a mashup of Edgar Rice Burroughs meets of Robert E. Howard in a dark alley, and it doesn't go well. Uh, <laughs> but he was also republishing with the Ballantines, 
the the adult fantasy series. So he's bringing all the classics of fantasy back into print as mass market paperbacks because the Lord of the Rings had been this huge sales hit and everybody in North America was looking around. Is there anything else? We oh yeah, sure. There's all this stuff. He says, yeah. don't you know how much stuff is out there? And it was everything from um, the romances that Don Quixote was a satire of you know, a Mattis of Gaul, Palmer of England, to all the stuff from Weird Tales, Seabury Quinn, Robert E. Howard, all that stuff. He was just like bringing it all into print and throwing it at us. And, and once my father discovered this was happening, he was buying them for him. And I was reading every single thing he brought home and Isn't saying, is there something? more of this, Dad? Is there more of that? Is there... So another 10 years later, D&D &D comes along. So, <laughs> well, and, and that's a perfect, perfect transition for us, uh, because I think that that's going to kind of be the next step in this uh, discussion. So, sure. guys, we're going to take a quick break. But before we head out that break, keep in mind that the Insider Insights series is my opportunity to sit down with designers, developers, artists, writers and creators and learn how they approach their work. I try to understand their process, inspiration and the methods for crafting their creations. And that's exactly what we're going to do with that today. We'll be right back. This is the part of many podcasts where someone comes on, interrupts the show, and explains that you should consider paying for the content that you're listening to right now for free. That pitch man explains by giving a dollar or more a month, you not only support the show, but you allow the show to grow and improve. Here on the third floor, we refuse to interrupt your episode of Tabletop Talk with such time-wasting pleas. We pledge never to run a spot asking you to go to patreon.com and give a dollar or more a month because supporting content creators keeps the content coming. Even if there is a link in the show's description, and there is, we don't ask you to click it and become a patron. We don't waste time rambling about the benefits like early access to episodes, getting episodes without ad breaks like this, or even getting a chance to play in one of Craig's RPG sessions. Anyway, Enjoy this episode knowing Tabletop Talk, despite being supported by its patrons, won't engage in such blatant appeals for support. So now that we got a little bit of Ed's origin mm. story, and Ed, it's funny, um, you know, listening to you talk, I've talked to several authors now um, on this podcast, and but if there is one thing in common, it is every every author that I've talked to who I enjoy um, are just voracious readers, and I've been told by many authors that you know that that's how you learn how to write is you've got to read, you've just got to mm -hmm. read, 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 and um, you know during the break here, Ed was just dumping all of this amazing information on me, and we'll have it in the outtakes at the end here because it was a really good conversation. But Ed, I want to talk a little bit more about the intersection because soon in your story we find that you discover tabletop gaming and you of course find it as many people did with Dungeons and Dragons so can you give me an idea of when Dungeons and Dragons came on your radar sure yeah so my dad being in the military there were simulation games around the house the 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 modern North American equivalent of Kriegspiel which is right for those of you who don't know gaming it's the military fog of war equivalent of broken telephone 
you test your officer corps by having them all in different rooms and and orders get sent back and forth and people can only see maps not each other and mayhem ensues and you're supposed to train <laughs> your officer corps to be really good on the battlefield by doing this and and this was done way back in napoleonic times the the germans in the time of napoleon were doing it okay and and it has gone on and and of course we had all the board games of every sort from steeplechase and so on you know all the way down and the toronto is the city i grew up in or i grew up in a suburb but you know it had cool stores downtown uh comic book stores you know no science they actually had a science fiction and fantasy bookstore whoa uh, you know and and the th original three D and D booklets showed up there. I also have spent my entire life working in public libraries, uh, starting from age fourteen as a as a library page, so I could shelve everything and bring it home if it wasn't a reference book and read it. Um, yeah, I I could still remember a a, a young a lady with a very severe horn rim glasses saying. Ed, you're supposed to shelve the books now and read them later. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so I, I learned to read really quickly and surreptitiously. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> that's how you but, became a fast reader. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you, do, you devour a novel on the way to school. I had to walk a mile to school. So I devoured a novel on the way there and a novel on the way back. Anyway, um, and I don't read that fast anymore because I want to stop and savor or it becomes drudgery and I move to something else, you know, because I've got umpteen books on the go. So along comes the three booklets of D&D. &D. This is before the little white box. There are separate booklets. My father brings them home and says, hey, son, you might be interested in these. And I, I sit down and read them. I think this is really cool. And then I think, and it's just going to devolve into an argument at the table. There's not enough here. There's not enough, you know, I, I, I didn't quite get it because I'm coming from the mindset of a game that has strict rules. And I'm thinking this is just free for all storytelling. It's going to devolve into an argument and whoever's the dungeon master is going to have to rule, decide on, and people are going to get angry and whatever. And I think we'll shelve it. And then out comes Greyhawk, the, the booklet Greyhawk, the with beholders and so on, and all those cool magic items. And then out comes Black Moor, and then out comes Eldritch Wizardry. I, I'm trying hard not to call them Grey Hack, Black Manure, and Eldritch Misery, which was <laughs> the nicknames that all the gamers had for them back then. Anyway, but when they came out, it was like, oh, these are so cool. Okay. And of course, that also added the thief character and added, you know, and and I thought, oh, there's enough here. So I played with some friends, but they weren't really into it, and we dropped it. Fast forward to 1978. Monster Manual, Player's Handbook. Those two come out, Monster Manual first, but I get the Player's Handbook and I go, oh, ah, everything I'm writing in the realms, I now quietly use this as the skeleton. Because No kidding. The monster manual is really cool because it gives us all the monsters exactly what they do, how powerful they are, their what they do, how they're ranked against each other in effect. Okay, they work. This is the mechanics of monsters. You know, and I devoured all my father's popular science and popular mechanics magazines. You know, the ones that every five years had a cover about 
the car in your driveway will have wings and you'll fly to work. You know, those, you know, I love them, you know, but anyway, here was, here was mechanics for, for monsters, but then out comes the player's handbook and here's Jack Vance's magic system. Everything laid out in detail. This is perfect. So in the same way that, um, the guy, Don Pendleton, um, writing the executioner books, um, later talks about keeping himself honest during action scenes so he doesn't have a guy fire 732 times without reloading you know he would uh, he would actually work out the gunfights you know can i run here that can i get over this wall that fast um when would i have to reload so i don't in the book make it unrealistic because of course the readers will catch you. Yes, they will. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> and they'll the let you know. <laughs> yeah, they'll let you know. Yeah. So in the same way, this gave me a backbone for my fantasy. So I said, right, from now on, everything I put in the realms is whether I acknowledge it or not, say it or not, blatantly in the prose, I'm using this to keep myself honest. I'm using this as an armature, a backbone and so on for the for the storytelling. So I'd be curious, Ed, at this point, so we're looking at, you know, uh, mid to late 70s, right? And you're, you're coming across the coming across this material, you're starting to absorb this material, enjoying the structure of it. Had anybody else read your Forgotten Realms stories at this point? Or was it something that you were just pretty much writing for yourself or maybe some close friends? Um, pretty much self and close friends. You see, when I started writing these pastiches, like, years earlier when I was five and six years old, my father would take them to work and he'd pass them around. So you got a bunch of radar physicists and military guys designing, you know, trying to stop the Russians and bombers over the pole to, you know, and, and he would pass around these, um, these little snippets that I typed out um, on his uh, Underwood eight um, massive metal tank of a typewriter. And yeah, I, I fired my blaster and the speedster crashed. I said, the princess <laughs> Deja, whatever, will never, <laughs> you know, that sort of stuff. And he'd pass them around to his, to his friends. So they'd all have a good chuckle over it. Um, until the time one of them said to him, Oh, this is really good. Um, Bob, you should have this, uh, this son of yours, write a sex scene. And my father would say, he's five. <laughs> we might wait a little bit for that. Yeah, we might wait a little. <laughs> the the research will be fun. No. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> but anyway, but but yeah, so my father had read them and he would say things like, That's that's really good. But that character there just sort of pops up. You know, I, it, it seems too convenient to me as a reader that in comes this character. Set him up at the beginning. Let us see them in the distance at the beginning. Then it doesn't feel like you, ah, okay. So I was, I was learning the little tricks. That's the Chekhov gun thing. You know, if you see a gun hanging on the wall in act one, it better be fired before the end of the play sort of thing, which isn't necessarily true. You can break all the rules. You just have to know why the rule was put there and think, eh, can I break this? Yes, I can. <laughs> but yeah, so my father and his, his, um, business colleagues were reading my stuff. Uh, I had one long lost now novel published back then, Fool's Master, um, because in those days there were a lot of small publishing houses in Toronto because it was the center of the Canadian publishing industry. And 
there were lots of tiny presses like Coach House Press in those days, which is now an imprint of a larger publishing company, was really run by hippies in a coach house. And that's uh, which is a you know a garage, a coach house, um, and they had a hand printing press and so on. And and every every book they couldn't sell, which was almost all of them, went into uh, a warehouse, <laughs> which was an adjacent garage. Uh, so I mean, there was lots of that sort of. And when when you bought the paper, and you bought the press time, and you had extra paper lying around, people could actually publish their own poetry books. You know, tons of beat poets. Yeah. Almost almost darn near for free, you know, right. a couple hundred bucks for a tiny press run because they had to use up this paper. So I, I did, in fact, get a novel published, that, which is <laughs> you know, long gone. I, even, I don't even have a copy called Fool's Master. But yeah, along, along comes Dragon Magazine. Yeah, see, I would get there eventually. No, <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're on our way, Ed. We're, we're good. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, yeah, Mr. Gameway's Ark um, was a, a really cool store, long long gone and very much lamented on Young Street in Toronto. And they had a gaming, uh, the second floor was the game games. Uh, they had stuff like pool tables and giant ship models that cost tens of thousands of dollars and were in glass display cases on the ground floor. And you would have to, and when you went to the fourth floor, they had a complete model of the bridge of the USS Enterprise. Wow. Yeah. Life-size for people to put on costumes and play in. But but in the middle they had a gaming floor and it had everything from Parcheesi and um, marbles and various card games to D and D and they had Dragon, so I bought one. Oh, this is really cool! So I started buying them all the time, and then along came this feature in it called um, Dragon's Bestery, which was a relaunch of featured creature. And it said at the bottom of the page, anything on this page on this page is as official as anything published in the Monster Manual. And we will pay, I think it was either twenty-five or fifty dollars US, which was a lot of money to a kid in Canada in those days, because at that time the American dollar was about two-thirds better than the Canadian dollar, so it scaled up. Um and so when when you're when you're living on a twenty-five cent allowance. That's a sudden boost in, you know, you, you're a tycoon. You're that little guy from the Monopoly game. You know, you could have <laughs> cigars. No. So so I wrote um, I wrote a monster and I mailed it off. It was um, The Cursed, and it appeared in um, Dragon Issue 30. And I thought, oh, this is so good. So I wrote another one called The Crawling Claw. And I sent it away. This is how long ago this is. 16 days later... Canada Post brought back my issue of Dragon Magazine, and my monster was in it. Unbelievable. They're desperate, I said, and started <laughs> right <laughs> If they'll take my monster right away, they're desperate. So I started inundating them with monsters. I also, um, TSR had brought out a, a board game called Divine Right, which we'd eagerly bought. And uh, it had two problems with the rules one of them was um the board was a, a a piece of paper you folded out and in the same way that spi games back in the day uh would be white printing on black around the board the colored board and they would have rules on the board around the edges particularly setups for armies you you set up the little counters because they don't come on till turn 36 or whatever and there they <laughs> right. were on the edge of the board okay well 
Divine Right had the same thing, and it had this place on the, in the game called Greystaff. And Greystaff was this ancient site. You would sacrifice your own armies at Greystaff, very barbaric, and get um, a reign of locusts or a lightning storm or a flood or whatever. And one of the rules ended in mid-sentence. Well, there was obviously oh, something missing there. There was also a southern kingdom with orange counters called Shukasim. And it, the game told you it had this many counters, and the sheet that you punched out to get all the had a different number of armies for Shukasim. So there were obviously two things to fix. So I wrote an article for fixing them and sent them off to Dragon. And they held it for, uh, for a theme issue for Divine Right, which was Dragon issue 34. And one of my friends who played the game with me, Victor Selby, wrote a thing on Siege doing sieges in, um, and they published his article too. And we thought, this is so easy. It's like free money. It's like, geez, if they'll take our stuff, they must be desperate. So we, st we started and, and I immediately did remember I was telling you before about Philip Jose farmer and gates. Yep. So I wrote a gates article for D and D, um, which they retitled from gates in D in D and D to, from the city of Brass to Dead Orc Pass in one small step, the theory and use of gates in the game. Um, and it appeared in Dragon 37. And I then got a letter, because remember, no internet. Um, this is way back then. I, and usually you got an acceptance postcard from Tim <laughs> Kask. Um, and this time I got a letter from Kim Mohan, who was the assistant editor under Jake. Uh, of Dragon at the time, and he said, are you coming to Gen Con this year? And I thought to myself, well, I am now. <laughs> so how old are you at this point, Ed? Oh, gosh, I don't know. That would be, I think, 1979, and I was born in 59. So, yeah, I was 20. I was, I was born in the summer of 59, so I'm a child of the 60s, but too young to have enjoyed all the fun stuff. <laughs> right. you know, I could just watch it, which is another story, but we won't, we won't digress there. It's a completely only, different podcast, Ed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. When you're a little kid and you're very quiet and you're sitting there reading a book, people forget you're there. Things happen. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, so uh, enough said. So, so, yeah, so he invites me to Gen Con. Um, now, my first Gen Con was Gen Con 8, which I attended in the Horticultural Hall in Lake Geneva, which I attended because my father was in Chicago. Oh, this is going to be a long digression, so I'll just gloss over it and say he was at the Playboy Mansion in Chicago um, doing a spy thing. And um, it was long enough ago you could park right in front of the Playboy Mansion and somebody had stapled a handbill to the telephone pole, which was wood, again, long ago, which advertised Gen Con. So um, leaving aside all the Playboy Mansion stuff, um, I saw this thing and said, hey, Dad, can we look? Can we go? And, and I was along as camouflage spy. <laughs> I'm taking my son. To, and, and he goes, oh, son, you know, it's a long way from home. This is going to be a huge drive because, you know, we're driving back to Toronto. And he goes, Dad, I never ask for any. He goes, that's true. Okay. So, oh, yeah, okay. So he drove me there, and he's a farm boy. So he's getting happier and happier as we get outside of Chicago and we're in the countryside. And then, you know, 
when we walk into the horticultural hall, which is this tiny room full of sand tables and um, guys with developing tummies and pocket protectors and and they're they've got slide rules and they're they're actually using tape measures and burst circles which they've made by bending a, a coat hanger into a round circle and he and my father is like ah so glad we came you know <laughs> and there's funny? miniature yeah you know, anyway that was gen con 8 but gen con 13 by then they'd graduated to university of kenosha parkside campus and uh, Kim Mohan was running the the uh, dragon booth, which was a plastic folding table and two chairs. And yeah, we're we're back in the day. And and, and and I introduced myself, and he goes, "Ah, I want to talk to you. Can you come back in ten minutes when it's lunch?" And Wisconsin Parkside is in this middle of this. The university grounds is in a park, and he just pushed open a glass door, and we're outside walking in the park, and he invited me to be a contributing editor and i said wow oh. and he says it's a masthead job and i said oh what does it pay and he says that's the contributing part <laughs> <laughs> it's unpaid but you see gamers get touchy if they've sent in their great article about how napoleon used toothpicks and therefore this was the secret to him winning battles across europe and they don't publish that gamer's article for a year or two years or three years. And they're publishing this Ed Greenwood guy every month. Um, and Kim also hired Roger Roger Moore, not the actor, Roger E. Moore, uh, to be the other contributing editor at the on the same day. And it was because Kim had a journalism background and he desperately wanted somebody he could assign writing to. And I need three pages or a page and a half on the orcs falling down pit traps, or I need half a page, no more, to go with this piece of art, and it would be really nice if I had it by Thursday. Um, because, you see, in those days, Dragon was published in signatures of eight pages. Because when you use the giant scissors on a big piece of paper in the mill, you can cut it in eights or sixteens, depending on the size of the thing. And the magazine shrank or grew depending on the amount of ads they that had been bought. And therefore they suddenly had to expand or contract the magazine when they were doing layout in about three days near the end of near their deadline. And it would be really nice to have somebody or to have to be able to bank stuff that I wouldn't expect to be paid. And I was overjoyed. You know, and I, I later became a uh, journalism student at university. Off I went to Ryerson to learn how to be a journalist. And I didn't go to be a journalist that says, hello, Mrs. McGillicuddy, you don't know me from Adam, but your son just got killed at a railway crossing. Was he a nice boy? Can you say something about him? Do you have a picture of him we can use for the front page? That just makes my skin crawl. I never wanted to be that journalist. I wanted, and I took the journalism degree purely to become free of the, oh, I can only write if the wind is in the east and the right music is on and I'm wearing my fluffy pink slippers and there's no dogs barking. Because in those days, journalism was ringing telephones, people yelling, oh, somebody shot the Archduke Ferdinand, quick, update your stories, and then thundering typewriters, a room full of them, and I wanted to learn how to write under any conditions. And I did. And fast, because, you know, 
people like Kim were saying, <laughs> it would be really nice if we can have it by Thursday. I, I then later on graduated to TSR saying, um, <clears throat> we've had a product go west on us. How much can you give us by the other end of this weekend? Because production needs it by the end of the week. And we're going to have to put together what you send and what four or five other people we've asked will send if they can send anything. So when I, and which is why I ended up being a non-staff designer at TSR, never on staff, never even in the United States, except for a week at Gen Con. And I, I would stay in the United States for a week purely for customs reasons, because the customs limit for Canada getting back in was $25 purchased when you were away for 48 hours or less and the customs officers had this little trick they'd say so did you have a fun time in the states we'd say yeah did you gas the car up well yeah there's your 25 dollars ha ha gotcha uh, but if you stayed for more than a week and you couldn't count the day that you left the country or the or the day you came back one of the two of them i can't remember so you had to be away for eight days you could you could buy 200 bucks worth of stuff and it was later raised and i was going to gen con like every gamer to fill the car with stuff i couldn't find anywhere else and and and, and in fact i later went to gen con as the guest of a local gaming store now sadly defunct in toronto called the battered dwarf where john dunn said to all of us kids okay you're all driving down with me give me 25 bucks each that's your that's for the gas and what happened was he used it to gas this rented car and to stop at every truck stop and buy all day breakfast all the way down. And then he used our customs allotment to import stuff for his store in the way back to Canada. So he had a car <laughs> full of six kids and he would usually hit a skunk or something. <laughs> so it was fun. But, you guys are gaming mules. <laughs> yes, we were gaming mules. That's exactly it. But but that was the thing. Yeah. Um, so I was I was then a contributing editor for Dragon and I was away to the races and I would write stuff just off the top of my head because Kim would occasionally assign me stuff like the ecology series was an assignment. Um, and so was the Wizards 3 series because they wanted to promote all of TSR's worlds. So that that series were Morden Kanan and, and um, Raistlin and Elminster all get together in my study and get drunk. Um, and 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 eat my ice cream and stuff that was an editorial assignment but in between those editorial assignments i was writing stuff that i wanted to add to the game and they were publishing it it was wonderful and then they wanted novels and that was spellfire and spellfire has apparently sold over 8 million copies um That's around the world in all sorts of language like 48 languages or whatever and is still selling um and yeah, 400 books later, here I am. Ta-da! <laughs> so I'd be curious, Ed, when does the discussion start happening of we need a new setting? And when do they start looking at you? Uh, okay. I have to piece this together from what I've been told and learned afterwards. Because remember, I'm up in Canada. I'm not a staffer. Okay. Um, as far as I understand it, when Gary lost control of the company, they didn't want to go on using Greyhawk. The company didn't. And um, apparently, they set out to design a world, Dragonlance, and it took two years, and everybody in the company doing this creative thing, 
So a lot of staff time, a lot of work, and they wanted to have a big epic. So you have a quest to overcome evil. So it's sort of like the Lord of the Rings. There's one problem with a big quest story. What do you do for an encore? Well, you save the world again. Or you, you show them the other side of Kryn, which they in, indeed did in a box set by Zeb Cook. Um, but that is a very expensive way of doing a world because it took a lot of staff time. Staff artists, everybody working top, and you've got this thing, and you don't know if it's going to be a flash in the pan or whatever. And the game is coming up to a second edition. And a staff designer at TSR called Jeff Grubb, who's become a very dear friend, and we worked on the realms together for years, comes up with a, a white paper, a position paper, an internal document, uh, which I if I may be parsing this wrong, but I think the the title was a proposal for a unified game world for the second edition of D D. Okay? And the idea was they would have a world, a kitchen sink world, so they could put Oriental Adventures, which became Oriental Adventures, Jungle Adventures, which became Malatra, the living jungle, Arabian Adventures, which became El Hadim, um, uh, all of the Arctic Adventures, uh, which we shoved up in the Great Glacier, everything, okay? And he writes this proposal, it gets approved, Jeff Grubb also reads Dragon. A lot of people at, at um, the company do. And Jeff cold calls me at the library. I'm working at the uh, Brookbanks Public Library at this time, which is a small community branch library. So it's one of those architect award designed open plan. Everything is one room except the two washrooms. Okay. It's all one room. Nice. So I'm, I'm at the desk and the phone rings. I pick it up and say, Good afternoon, Brookbanks Public Library. Can I help you? And this voice on the other end says, Hi, is this Ed Greenwood? Can I speak to Ed Greenwood? And I said, That's me. And he goes, You don't know me, but my name's Jeff Grubb. I'm calling you from the United States. I'm calling you from the publisher of Dungeons and Dragons, TSR Incorporated. I read Dragon Magazine. I see your stuff a lot. I got a question for you. Do you have a complete detailed game world at home? Or do you just make this stuff up as you go along? And I said, yes, and yes. <laughs> and he goes, good, send it. And then he says, oh, wait, I can't say that. Do you have a pencil and paper handy? And I said, yes, it is a library. You know, and he goes, write down this number. Wait until after 5 o'clock, your time. Well, are you in Eastern? I said, yes. He goes, okay, 4 o'clock, your time. Call this number. A man will answer. His name is Mike Dobson. He's my boss. He wants to ask you something. And of course, <laughs> what they were doing was setting it up so that Mike Dobson would phone me from home after work and ask if I would sell them the realms. And if it fell through, it didn't have to be on the books. It didn't have to be reported anywhere. It was... You know, he was doing a feeler, just a feeler. Is this an option? And therefore, nothing has to be, nobody has to talk about it in a meeting because it was all extracurricular. I didn't realize this at the time. So, uh, but, and I didn't mind. And I said yes right away uh, without hesitation. 
And Mike Dobson said, I haven't even offered you money yet. And I said, I don't care. And he said, what? I said, I don't care. Because I was thinking I will get gorgeous colored maps of my world printed that won't have my pencil crayon marks <laughs> in all the seas. That's all yeah. I cared about. Yeah. So and that's why I said yes. And that's where it all started and, and away to the races. So when so at what point then does it do you actively partner with them right so you, you you sell them the rights to it and or you know so I, I i don't know if that's true you 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 decide that they're going to use the forgotten realms right yeah and they, i sold i sold i sold them the rights got okay. it okay and 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 you're but you're active beyond that right it wasn't just a hot potato at that point that you tossed over to them you were you were involved the entire time while it was being implemented is that correct oh yes uh they gave me their fedex account number <laughs> um, and I was typing up weekly packages and FedExing them from the library where I worked um, off to Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. And Jeff would call me every weekend and we'd have three and four hour phone calls. And one of the things he was doing um, was saying, OK, can you give me all the dungeons? Um do you have anything more in this place called Thay? You know, um, uh, and and I that I would put in the next package, and and then the my my advance for writing Spellfire, which wasn't an advance, it arrived a year after Spellfire was in their hands, um, was to buy me a Mac II computer, because the T's had died on my father's Underwood Eight typewriter, and I was hand drawing all the T's in on. All the pages and as jeff said later it looked like a graveyard all these little crosses <laughs> <That's> <laughs> was driving funny. and and the secretarial pool at tsr because this is a midwestern small company and they hire little old ladies from everywhere was being their secretarial pool and they were inputting all this stuff and they were doing what secretaries across middle america had been trained to do they were turning it into modern american business english so I'd, I'd write, prithee, my lord, dost not thou how I trow? And the lady would frown at it and say, a merger is, is, is contemplated between this country and this country. <laughs> and, you know, that she's turning it into business English. So there were there were some amusing moments. Um, but yeah, I was. And then you see the nice thing and the thing that created this golden working relationship was that people at TSR rapidly discovered that their working day was a lot easier if they just unofficially called Ed because he knew he had all this stuff and he could write half their product for them by just sending it to them. And then they their job was just to input it, massage it, make it fit the company mold, and then add their own stuff. Because, you know, if somebody gives you the keys to the vet, you want to drive it. You know, so everybody wants to add their own thing. That's cool. But I could, I could tell them where the, the closets were to find the skeletons in the closets, save them a lot of time. And I could see the unfolding tapestry. So I could say, wait a minute, you better check with the art department because they're doing something. You don't want to conflict with them. And they'd say, how do you know that? <laughs> and that's something. Yeah. And, and it was actually amusing because I turned into a father confessor for everybody at TSR. When they were having fights with each other, they'd phone the library and bitch. 
And I'd say, oh, dear, oh, oh, my, oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah, I can understand why you'd be so upset. I put the phone down in the cradle. It would ring. I pick it up, say, good afternoon, Brookbank's library. <laughs> the other and it would side be the it. other side going, do you know what that idiot did? You know, I'd say, oh, really? Oh. And I have to pretend I never heard the first phone That's call. That's fantastic. Oh, really? Oh, oh, dear. Um, and I, I was laughing it up because I'm a gamer and a fan. And I'm finding out inside stuff about, yeah, so I was loving it. And then, of course, because I visited them every year, I would take them out to restaurants. It was hilarious. I could still remember some secretary saying, geez, we've never had like a writer take us out before. Oh, that's fun. (laughs) (laughs) So I would I would love to know, Ed, what it was like when TSR first put out that material, when you first got your maps, when you first saw your world, uh, you know, canonized, you know, from TSR, a game that you loved. And what, what was that moment like when, when that first arrived in your hands? Well, it was a sort of delayed excitement because first there was a glossy insert map that was published as a centerfold in Dragon. You know, you pull it out from the staples. And it was a small part of the realms. It was like, oh, this is gorgeous. And then there was Dark Walker on Moonshade, which was Doug Nile's novel. You see, uh, TSR UK had set uh, the subsidiary, uh, had started out to do their own publishing program. And then later on, the higher ups just said, no, it's just going to be reprint. But Doug Niles, who was a staff designer at TSR, had started a sort of Albion, I think it was called, a, a, a Celtic England setting. And they sank my Moonshade Isles and substituted his campaign setting as the Moonshays. And he had a novel worked up that was supposed to be first of a trilogy for this. And so it became the First Realms product, uh, aside from this this freebie that was in Dragon. And then the box set came out because the idea was we had to hit the ground running we had to put out a lot of stuff. We had because TSR wanted to avoid the we're not going to support the setting. They wanted to get gamers ready to, yes, this is our big setting. There's going to be stuff every month. Hang on to your wallet because we're coming right. at you. Um, yeah. and they wanted to establish this habit. And that's one of the reasons why I got called on so much because they and, and uh, they didn't want because they'd seen it before. First, Gary was the bottleneck because he was trying to run this company that was growing by leaps and bounds. And he was having to do all this human HR personnel stuff that he wasn't used to and, and logistics. Um, and at the same time, he was trying to write the rules of D&D. And we were all waiting. Remember the famous Dragon 21, which has the tables from the Dungeon Master's Guide in it and an apology from Gary that the Dungeon Master's Guide is taking too long, but while you're waiting, here are the combat tables so you can at least run your games. And he wants to write his own novels, Gord the Rogue and so on, and he's being expected to do Greyhawk as a world and Castle Greyhawk and the, all that stuff. You can't do all of them. I, I tried for years, uh, hence the way I look now. No, <laughs> But I mean, uh, there was one year just before TSR got, got merged acquired, but it was officially a merger uh, with Wizards of the Coast, where I did 11 products during the year. And and I had a full-time job that I drove 100 miles to work and 100 miles home with my wife every day, um, six days a week, sometimes seven when they were open on Sundays. 
by the end of the year, I didn't know what my own name was. And thank goodness we were by then writing on computers because if I started typing this wonderful love scene and it happened to be in the file docs for a game, I could just pick it up and move it to the right document and drop it back into the file. Uh, whereas in the days of typewriters, mm -hmm. uh, but, but yeah, um, you learn how to write fast and you learn how to write in 42 different ways. Because one of the things I've had to learn over the years, because I've now been doing this for 55 years and I've done it for like 400 odd books and so on, is everybody has their own tiny wrinkle on how they do things. So the process is different for almost every project. Um, and I've now reached the stage where I've tried almost every way of doing things. So I usually say to whoever my boss is on a project or whoever I'm collaborating with, how do you want to do it? Okay, we'll do it that way. Because, hey, I've done it every which way. I know none of them work. No. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I mean, so let's do it whatever your way is because it'll be more entertaining. And I might learn something because it's fresh and new. Instead of saying, oh, I have to crank out novel 36 in the series of, you know, <laughs> I don't want ever fall into that. I want it to be joyful for the rest of my life. Well, and, and, and it makes you easy to work with, right? Which is always a good thing yeah. to have in the business <laughs> is have that oh, reputation. Yeah. So, Ed, when, um, when Wizards of the Coast um, takes over and, yeah. um, you know, D&D changes hands, how does that change your relationship uh, with the game? And, and did, what was your relationship with WotC? Uh, steadily more distant in that, um, you see, TSR was, you might say, a dysfunctional family, <laughs> but it was a family. And it worked that way for good and bad in the same way that you might always fight with your brother or sister, you know, and there might be huge family rows. It was family. Um, Wizards was different from the very beginning. And increasingly as it goes on and it becomes owned by Hasbro, it's more corporate. And one of the things that um, you do when you're being corporate, um, the, the company should be the source and you could see it with Disney and George Lucas now over Star Wars. The company should be identified as the source of canon for a brand, not necessarily the original creator. So it's like nudge, 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 nudge. So I was immediately getting nudged out of game design and just being an author of novels. And then when you, when you discontinue your fiction line, goodbye <laughs> yeah you know yeah it's 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 and, and okay that's fine i i there's a part of me that goes oh that's sad we could have gone on churning out realms novels forever there's so many stories i want to tell and i my my chief disappointment was the hundred year time jump that they did for fourth edition um which freed them of having to read canon and so on and all this backstory and also means again if you're a corporate corporation you're going to license your brand an outside um licensee doesn't have to read all these products and keep current with them they have a free hand to do whatever they want um because time jump um and right now you have a, a movie coming along not the first time that's been attempted um <laughs> yeah. 
but it means <laughs> great track it, record. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I don't mean that. I mean in between the movies that did appear and this one, uh, almost every major Hollywood studio has had a crack at um, at least. Here's a pitch, you know, um, and you you want them to have a free hand, and they want to have a free hand, and and so therefore it's easier if you have the world. And of course, that to me, this is my reading of the tea leaves, not something I've been officially told. I would say that's why in fifth edition, most of the realm's official releases are concentrating on the Sword Coast. Because it gives the rest of the world, if you want to have walking skyscrapers, if you want to have, you know, talking mountains, oh, okay, it's just different over there in the world. You're not tromping on canon. You're showing a new side of the world. And, and you know, the, the, there's a way of – I can buy that. As a, see, I, uh, if you look at it from the meta storytelling thing, that's cool. Why not do it that way? Um, but at the same time, it means that there are things – that there are stories – I didn't get to tell, and um, that's that's a bit of a um, hmm, 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 hmm. whoa. Um, there are things that I would wish turned out differently, but that's the same as everybody in life. Um, and in the meantime, I've gotten to know people all over the world, and I've got to travel usually on somebody else's dime. Um, <laughs> Which is nice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've got to work creatively with all sorts of people, and that is the joy and the delight in it, particularly giving people their first chance. Who are, People who are burning with a story to tell. Oh, this is your chance. And, of course, there, there's the occasional problem where they they want to be a writer. They, they don't want to write. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean? <laughs> I do. <laughs> yeah. So there is that. Um, but but um, with somebody who's just a story possesses them and they, it's bursting out of them, to see them get the chance is great. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Well, guys, we're going to take another break. When we get back from this break, I really want to dig a little bit deeper into Ed's process. And it's fascinating because it sounds like we've got 42 different ways to do it. Um, but I want to find out what works for Ed. We'll be right back. You like science fiction, right? You love playing games, maybe even role-playing games. But what if you can't get your friends together for a game night? If you love games like Mothership or Orbital Blues, check out Deadbelt, a card-based space western solo strategy RPG about skillful and desperate scavengers picking over the remains of junked starships in hopes of a juicy payday. In it, you deal with lurking dangers, push your luck, and walk away with enough cred to keep on flying. Of course, you might get eaten by lurking aliens, or run afoul of rival scavengers, or face the murderous ghosts of long-dead spacers. No one said life in the dead belt was going to be easy. For more information on this and all of Sean and Abby Drake's games, swing over to acoupleofdrakes.com. The link's in the show notes.
So, Ed, you know, one of the things that I've been trying to do with this podcast is not only talk about the history of creators like yourself um, and, you know, get an understanding of the origin stories of the things that, you know, we all loved when we were 12 years old. Um, but I also like to get an idea of kind of the method and how the sausage is made. Um, and I don't know what's easier for you to talk about. Is it easier to, for you to talk about it from a, from a quote unquote author standpoint, from a game design standpoint? Um, what's the easiest way to kind of start this when, if, if one day someone is studying Ed Greenwood hundred years from now and, and they get to the chapter that says the, the Greenwood method, what, what do you think that chapter would say? Bum on chair, fingers on keyboard, go. Uh, <laughs> right. Have it ready by Thursday. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, you see that the there is no easy pat answer to that. It's always it depends. Because um, the storytelling medium is different. It's all storytelling. It, it's and, you know, people say, oh, you know, what 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 separates us from mere animals is tool making. No, that's not true. All sorts of animals and birds make tools. The thing that separates us is storytelling. We tell each other stories and we attempt to make sense of the world and console ourselves when, you know, a loved one dies. Why did this happen? You know, or something goes wrong. I stubbed my toe. Why? You know, um, we, we, we tell each, okay, there's a good reason you don't kick rocks. <laughs> and here's a story about it. And, and we tell each other stories. But the way you tell a story, the forms that we've accepted in, in mass market, mass distribution society, um, which is why I, I write novels in all sorts of different ways, because a big New York house, typically, uh, New York publishing house, I mean, uh, wants, if, you, if you're a first-time writer, they want to see a finished book. They want to know you can finish a book. They don't want to buy a book on spec. They might buy a book on spec if your name is um, Barack Obama. You know, <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, or they might buy a book on spec if you've written 40 other books already that have been New York Times bestsellers. Um, but they're, they want to see you can finish a book. And they also need an outline for any book. Like if, if, if we're buying a book and two sequels and it's going to be a fantasy trilogy because the, um, George Allen and Unwin split the Lord of the Rings into three books. So, hey, that seemed to work. It sold. Okay, so now this is the mold for how we <laughs> That's do the format. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and then, okay, if, if we're buying book one because we love it and you're just going to give us book two and three, we're just buying them as options, okay, give us an outline because I need that outline a year ahead of time so I can order the art from the artist and so I can write the catalog copy. Now, everything's changing with pixels from the print world, but that was the mold that was set. So you have to do an outline. Um, Elaine Cunningham and I were both notorious at TSR. Our outlines would be a third or a half the length of the finished book. <laughs> because we put key dialogue in of the scenes, the climactic scenes. This person says this, the villain says this, the hero says this, and the naive king who's about to die says this, you know, because I want to capture the, and it was like, really? Whereas I have read some other outlines from some other authors, one of whom I collaborated with, where it says, chapter 15, more fighting. Chapter 16. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Less fighting. <laughs> it's whatever works and whatever your editor will approve. So, I mean, there's a different way. Now, if you're writing for comics, 
And I learned this because I wrote some comic books. And if you're writing for the small screen, and even more so for the large screen, don't write like a writer because you'll talk too much. Uh, Mark Mark Harmon, the um, actor who plays um, Jethro Gibbs on NCIS, quite often says, nope, this script makes my character talk too much because Gibbs is terse. He doesn't, he's a man of few words. And if a scriptwriter tries to use Gibbs to tell the story, Gibbs ends up talking too much. You have to understand the medium. You, you shouldn't tell as you might have to do when you're writing prose, you know, these little shaped squiggles of ink on paper that our brains turn into images. Uh, if you're actually gonna show them footage you know, on the screen, well, give the pictures a story to tell. You can leave the dialogue out. And, you know, the famous John Wayne, you know, yup, nope, one from a horse. <laughs> and I mean, there's, there's that famous scene where um, he can see that the barroom brawl is about, about to start. And he's playing dominoes with some Spanish ladies at a back table. And you see him look over his shoulder with apprehension. And then he just makes a shooing like this. And he goes, ladies, ladies. And they get up and run out of them. I mean, he said two words, same word twice. That's all you needed. Um, whereas if you're describing that scene, I mean, if you're a really good writer, like the guy who wrote Shane, you know, and you can write the same confrontation scene from the boy's point of view. And it's great that he tells it from the hero worshiping boy's point of view, because the boy is using very simple language to say, and then he turned. You know, <laughs> and and you're there, you're in the moment, but but the actual process of writing depends. It changes with the with the project, and I know writers talk about being a pantser or a plotter. So if I'm writing an outline, I sometimes have to be a plotter, although I throw the plot out the window when I've got the contract and we're actually writing. Uh, <laughs> oh, did I say that out loud? Oh dear. Uh, cut, cut, um, cut. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but, uh, but I, I tend to be a pantser in that it's far more fun if the characters take over and they do things. And sometimes I even spin a story from a scene. I mean, the forgotten realm back when I'm five began as a daydream before murder. It, be, it begins as me sitting bored in grade school, primary school, and I have this daydream. It's a woods, a northern Canadian woods. Uh, Michigan and Wisconsin would have the same woods, okay? Yeah, pretty it's, much. <laughs> it's, it's, it's winter. The snow is softly falling like a Christmas postcard. We're in the, a clearing in the depths of a deep forest. And there are critter eyes, pairs of critter eyes peering at us out of the trees. Well, they're not peering at us. They're peering at the clearing where this one lady wrapped in furs is sitting beside a little campfire. She's lit playing a harp for herself. And she has silver hair, silver as in the metal, not silver as in old. And her harping brings somebody to the fire. It's another woman with long silver hair, who looks like the first. They could be sisters, they could be related. And this woman is in full plate armor with a fur cloak over it. And she walks out of the trees brought there by the harping. I had to know who these two ladies were. The one sitting is Storm, 
and the one walking is Dove. But I didn't know Isn't that. Isn't that then. something? Yeah, to, yeah. Who are these people? Why are they doing here? This is so cool. i got to find out more. That's <laughs> where the Forgotten Realm starts. You had to finish your own story that you had started during your daydream. <laughs> so maybe here's another way I want to phrase it then, Ed, because that was super helpful. But I'd be curious, you know, one of the things that I'm picking up is, is how much you've learned through the years, through the processes, right? With, with different requirements, different restrictions, different methods, different formats and everything. It sounds like you've just picked up skills and techniques and inspirations all along the way. So what if you sat down with 25-year-old Ed and who's starting to bang out novels is there is there any shortcut you would offer him? Is there anything that you have now picked up through this whole process that you that would be interesting to twenty five year old Ed to find out? Yeah, you know when they said you be make a great lawyer, do it. And then when you've got the money and you can afford all the toys, you can write four novels a year and you can write them <laughs> right, and you can right. you. And you can get them published without any editorial changes because you're just going to buy the publishing company. <laughs> like that like that scene in Superman, you know, where Superman asked Batman, how did you get the house back? I bought the bank. I bought you the know, bank, yeah. Yeah. You know, that's uh, – so that's the <laughs> – okay, that would be the advice for 25-year-old Ed. But no, to be serious about it for – I'd say, yeah, go on doing what you're doing. Go on stumbling along. Go on trying everything. Because if you don't try everything, you'll never get another chance. We only know we have one life. Maybe we have more, but we only know we get one. So, and the other thing is, I would say to all those writers out there, because I was a child of the 60s, it was like, try everything once. Now, that can get you killed in short order if you cry really stupid things. But as a writer, if I want to write about what it's like to go skinny dipping at dawn on a nearly frozen lake where I have to crack the ice to get in there. Let's try it. What's it like to wake up in a graveyard with in the in the morning with the mists rising off all the graves? Try it. Uh, <laughs> what's it like to ride a horse? Try it. Uh, use suitable head protection and <laughs> but I mean <laughs> try all these things. Um if if you say oh it smelled like the worst um, pig manure that I'd ever smelled well okay go and find somebody's compost pile and have a sniff from a safe distance you can then write about it better because you've tried it then you'll find the words because you've experienced it right yeah yeah try everything um there are no i mean there are limits to this try everything and an officer that's why you found me in the, <laughs> <laughs> i'm yeah, a writer it, i'm trying to yeah. be a writer <laughs> well uh, there is the old joke of you know where the people who are monitoring our our computer usage are saying you better pick this guy up. Look, he's looked up bombs and he said, no, no, no. He's also looked up um, uh, how how to tie your shoelaces and and uh, sex scenes. And da, da, da. No, he's just another writer. You know, <laughs> you know. <laughs> That's funny. So, Ed, here's something I don't know is whether you during all of this still role played and whether you still participate in role playing games today. Sure. Yeah, I still play. Uh, I was I was. Um, on a uh, a uh, televised or YouTube um, last night playing with, with Ginny Loveday and Tony Winslow Brill um, as my fellow adventurers 
with Heath as our dungeon master. Yeah, I, I play regularly. I play in a, a long-running series called Quest for the Cure. I play in a Greyhawk one done by Jay Scott, Lord Kazumba. Um, I, I, uh, because during COVID, as streaming has gone well, various people have invited me to, you know, be the the guest ham actor, and and I have, yeah, and it's fun. Um, I I still run a home realms campaign, although we meet like once every few years now because we're scattered all over the world. And I every convention I go to wants to do a charity game, and and they want me to run the realms. And could you play Elminster? Sure, uh, <laughs> and, and be the dumb. so you do that. Um, so yeah, I, I play regularly, and but here's the thing: if you played in one of my games, you don't have to know the rules. It'll be additionless. I will use second edition characters that were used in playtests that I did for TSR back in the day. It's all ham acting. And I'll say things like, roll me a D20. You know, I won't be saying, oh, you make this roll with advantage. Or I won't be. And, and, and if the player says, what do I need? Never mind. Just roll the dice. Because I'm telling <laughs> the story and I'm giving them. That's the key thing about D&D. They tell the story with me. Everybody gets their chance to to direct the story. If I don't do that, then I'm not I'm not being a good DM in my mind. I know there's no right or wrong way to play D and D, but I don't want it to be an obstacle course. I don't want it to be a how can the dungeon master kill you in new and interesting ways. <laughs> Well, it sounds to me like the storytelling is the part that you love, right? And, yes. and, and the participation of that. And, you know, you it, it, I would think that you recognize rules have to exist in order for us to put call it a game. But at the mm -hmm. same time, it's that it's that uh, shared storytelling that makes it special. Well, speaking of making games, guys, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back from this break, we're going to talk about something a little bit more recent with that. We're going to talk about the fate of Norm's RPG. We'll be right back. This is Sean. You may have heard of me from such movies as Brett and Sean Go to Illinois, Two Motorcycles, One Stick of Dynamite, and Gaming and BS, what kind of RPG podcast is that? After my NFTs were stolen, I decided to become a patron of Third Floor Wars. The content is great, and it costs me less than a good shot of liquor. So consider becoming a patron. It may just land you your next big role. Head over to patreon.com forward slash third floor wars. Tell Craig Sean sent you. So one of the things that Ed, um, you know, I wanted when I contacted Ed and he was gracious enough to, you know, come on my silly little podcast. Um, one of the things I asked him is, you know, what are you working on today? That and I want to talk about it. And Ed, you brought up this uh, uh, Penta Haven's Fate of the Norms RPG. So let's first for the listeners talk about what that is and then what you're doing with it. Sure. OK, this is not my game. Number one, this is a game that was created by a guy up in Canada, lives north of Montreal, called Andrew Volkoskis. And he has been doing uh, Fate of the Norns for years now. Um, if you type in his name on Kickstarter, you can see all the various Pendlehaven Fate of the Norns um, projects. Um, it is a Viking-era game 
and it's loosely based on real history. And I say loosely based because the current iteration of the game um, is Fate of the Norns Ragnarok. And obviously, the end of the world didn't happen right. in 8, 835 AD, which is where we are in the game. Um, uh, the, or the Celtic Twilight, if you prefer. From the And the uh, the Andrew and I used to appear together at a, at a fan expo in Toronto. And at one point, he said to me, um, these games are really expensive to produce and put out. And I, I don't want people to... I want them to be able to pick up and play this one product by itself. And I'd say, okay, so put quick starter rules in every, every game. Oh, okay. And off. No. Um, and for Andrew, it's also always been a little bit about story. There is a beautiful fate of the Norns product, which is the illuminated Edda. And you can tell it apart from all the others because the cover has Odin upside down on the tree. So you're seeing an upside down guy on the cover. Okay, and he literally took all the versions from myth and legend and tried to reconcile them and put notes in and footnotes. So it's he's done the scholarship. Um, he's also got a, a various other wrinkles on this game, but the current Kickstarter that he's just fulfilling right now is Ireland or the Celts or Hibernia, which is called Children of Eriu in in the game. And I worked with Andrew and Michelle Franklin and James Kerr on Creatures from Myth and Legend, which has, it's a, it's a monster manual, but it's all, but Michelle and I just did stories. Okay. A story for each monster. And in fact, my, my monster from the point of view of the Lingormir, which is um, a Norse wingless dragon, I told it from the point of view of the monster. That's awesome. So we all have stories, and James Kerr would go through mythology, and then he'd write up, this is what we know about the Kelpie from mythology. This is what we know about Valkyries from the mythology. And they're reconciling Norse, Finnish, all the stuff, putting it together. And what we're doing right now for the game... Oh, that's the other big thing I should tell you about the game. Uh, you don't roll dice. Oh, wow. You weird runes. You have rune tiles, and you can play the game at a very a, a very simple method of you can just say like I do when I'm running D and D, the Norn or Dungeon Master, the Norn says, "What are you trying to do?" Oh, I try and sweet talk the guy. Okay, draw a rune, and you draw a rune from your bag, uh, and it determines whether you succeeded or not. Or in combat, you can play runes. But once you've played runes to try something, like a difficulty check, in effect, or or to do something in combat, you can't use it again. It's not in your bag. So you're making tactical decisions. You're you're like a Euro game. You're spending resources. Um, and there are cool things you can do in the game. And you can play the game at three different levels. Andrew's cleverly written it. It can be very crunchy where with, you know, there are, there's actually social combat in this game. Nice. Or you can say, okay, I'm going to try and convince the guard to let me in without bribing him. Because in case a bribe means he's going to kill me because he's being watched. You can't take bribes. Or I'm going to role play. You know, you can do it at three different levels. And the simple way is I don't care about the rules. Let's just do this. And the Norn says, oh, draw this, you know, um, or says, yeah, 
wh- how would you do that? Explain to me how you get over the wall. That sort of thing. So you can play it at that yeah. point. And so after Children of Eru fulfills, there is what he's set up and about to run called the Ultimate Viking Kickstarter. And it starts with a novel by me called The One-Eyed King set in medieval-era Dublin. The Vikings in real life conquered Dublin in the 790s AD and ruled it for seven, eight years. Um, and there was a real King Citric Suarin. He's the one-eyed king because as a teenager, he did a blot or sacrifice to Odin, the one-eyed god, by plucking out one of his own eyes My god. and throwing it in a brazier to dedicate himself to Odin. And when apparently, historically, when his brother followed the white god, the Christian God to us, he killed his brother. How dare you? You know, anyway, uh, but this is all long before he be. So he's on the throne in Askliath, which is medieval Dublin. And Ragnarok has come and it's the city of golden slaves. And he, all the money in the world is pouring into it and he's taxing at 100%. And there's a reason he's taxing, which I won't give away so as not to ruin it for people <laughs> playing the game. Um, but nobody knows this reason. They just know he's taxing the heck out of them. But um, in my novel, two young Celts, a gal and a guy from separate tribes, are sent to Athcleath to find out where the money's going. And in one case probably sent to kill the king but they're teenagers so you know <laughs> so what were the parameters you were given ed for that novel like how was it presented to you and and were you given were you given guardrails because they knew what they wanted the game to be and how the game wanted to be or were you were you able to help shape how this thing was going to unfold uh, i'd be curious to know like what that conver- conversation's like before you put a word down on a page Oh, it, what happens is Andrew and I have like weekly phone calls and we just chat and we're friends, you know. Um, yeah. And we, we want to get together and drink. Uh, I mean, no. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, no, no. I'm working. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Um, I'm working. See this whiskey go down? I'm working. I'm working harder. No, <laughs> but but no, uh, what, what's happening is uh, Andrew's sending me PDFs of Stuff. Read read these pages about Ragnar. Read this page about Citric. Um, I want to do a thing, and and we came together. To, and here's the other part of the ultimate Viking Kickstarter. Um, it has a graphic novel that Andrew's writing with an artist. It has some other cool stuff. It has two other novels. One of them is a, uh, Stephen Pearl is writing a novel that isn't in Athclaeus because he's continuing with his his characters from previous novels and Michelle Franklin, um, uh, an American expat living in, in um, Montreal is writing a hilarious novel, the misadventures of Mindel. Mindel is this Christian priest and he's a walking disaster without meaning oh, isn't to that be something. So, and she's going to visit Athcliath, but very cool. Andrew and I agree that the cornerstone of this Kickstarter is going to be a box set of a city, which is Athcleath. Now, you can use it in any role-playing game. If you don't want it to be Viking or Norse, you just file off the names because Norse use patronyms and matronyms. Everybody is 
Elvin's Elvis daughter or Harold's son or Samuel's son, you know, um, because of how they do the patronyms because they don't have surnames. Um, so if you don't want that, if that's not floating your boat, you're probably going to want to change some names. But what we're starting out to do, and we probably won't have time to do it for the initial box set, except for the eastern, I don't know, third or half the city, I'm detailing every building. Every NPC, every important NPC in the building, um, every NPC has, uh, every shop has a price list. So you know what you can buy there. Every every NPC has a dirty secret, Ooh, which is what cool. you would learn if you if successfully do social combat. Right. So you can manipulate them or you can ally with them or you can make a deal under the table with them. And there are all these things going on. The fae, the fairy folk, live in the city. They're not too pleased about these Norse because Norse don't get it. <laughs> the Celts live in the city. Some of them don't mind the money and so on and being oppressed. Others very much mind the... Yeah. Um, the Norse, are, and they're slaves. They're, they're, they're slavers. You know, and, and how's this going to work out? Yeah. Um, and, and everybody in the world is flocking to this city. They all have different agendas and so on. So it's going to be a, a melting pot city. Oh, and that's cool. This is the thing I couldn't do with Waterdeep because I no longer get to say, hey, I'd like to do a product. I did Volo's Guide to Waterdeep. What I was wanting to do, but I don't have the time and I've started on it, I was going to do a Volo's Guide to every ward of the city, updating oh, it wow. and detailing it. But I don't have time at the moment, but Andrew's given me this chance to do it with his city. So I'm going to do this whole city. And you can use it as a cornerstone city in your fantasy campaign for the rest of time. And we're going to go on, uh, it's going to be a living city in that we're going to go on updating it, releasing new new NPC packs, new adventure packs. We're, we're even toying with the idea of um, modular adventures where you draw cards and so on. Um, oh, wow. You know, so that this can be your cornerstone city. And at the same time, you can say, no, nah, I'm not going to use that little bit of it. Or I don't like this. Uh, and and like every gamer does everywhere, every dungeon master does, I'm just going to plunder it. I'm going to read it for entertainment, <laughs> and I'm going to plunder this, that, and the other thing and put it in my own existing world. That's cool. We oh, don't mind at all if you do that. Yeah, and it's, it sounds just like what you're just you're just laying out just this fertile field of just places and and it sounds like in the multiple levels that they could play from crunchy to narrative they could also go as deep as they want into the world that you're creating as well and mm -hmm. you know play every npc as written and go or like you said just plunder it for ideas and inspirations that's amazing ed i i want the city to be so that and and andrew was doing this with me in our, our calls he'd say okay so uh laundry where do you go to get your laundry done Okay, what happens to people's, you know, manure? Are there, are they, where, where does it go? Uh, what if somebody's trying to sneak out of the city? Okay, how much does it cost you to, to hire a barge? All this stuff. And we're doing little sidebars. How do you get past the gate guards? What are they going to inspect? How can you bribe right. them? How can you not bribe them? Um, and we're putting little sidebars in all over it so the Norn doesn't have to make anything up unless they want to. It's all right. there in front of them. And we were actually debating with them. Do we put these on cards? Do we take them out so people can lay them out, so people can stick them up on their DM screen or whatever they call it, <laughs> um, or if they want to play with others? How do we make this go on, on cell phones or online 
so they can walk the streets online. So that, that all this stuff is still being talked about. I'm just sitting here <laughs> map, map, mapping. In fact, I'm going to hold this up for you to see. That's a keyed raw block. And oh, by raw, it's... I haven't I haven't put the roof codes on or paint drawn any of the roofs. The, those little weird things that where the one is, that's a well. Oh, so for those of you listening, uh, what Ed is showing me right now is a hand-drawn map of like a city block. And you can see where he's starting to put in some details, starting to put some some things in there. That's really cool, Ed. There, and I have been drawing detailed blocks and because I have to give them to the artist so he knows whether it's a tile roof, a slate roof, a turf roof, a board roof. Um, so they match the descriptions. And I want... You see, the real Athcliath, the real Dublin, uh, the puddle came down and the black pool, that's the Athcliath part, where it joined the Liffey. And the Vikings could pull their longships in and not have them carried away by the tide back out to sea. So, <laughs> But something? all of these, like any other large city, like London in England and so on, the, 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 the creeks and the rivers get roofed over by the city and they expand across them. So they become the sewers. And we're thinking about all this stuff. How will we bring it along? So Ed, we have spent the last 90 minutes talking about so many things that you have learned and the steps you've taken in your career and you know how each project brought something new to you and stuff. What, what have you learned working with Andrew on this? So is there anything that this has done and taught you that in all of these years before you haven't had a chance to, to pick up? Or is there a challenge that you've been met with here that you've yet to have faced before? Uh, okay, I'm learning more Gaelic and, and, <laughs> and, and how nobody in Ireland agrees on how to pronounce anything because there's local dialects even now. And, and, of course, we always get like when we were online at GaryCon and we were talking about it and people are saying, you're not pronouncing that right. Yes, we are actually from 835 AD. Right. It's right. now pronounced. There was a great vowel shift in anyway. Uh, so I'm learning all that. Um, I'm getting a full grounding in Norse mythology. I knew it That's as a awesome. sort of fun, entertaining um, level before. But with Andrew and James, they have actually gone over, okay, this conflicting version of the mythos and this conflicting version of the mythos, but this turns into this. So we've had to pick this one because if it's going to be definitive and we come out of it over there, like the Leos Elfar and the Zvart Elfar, you know, yeah. um, how are we going to handle them? How are they going to, you know, and, and there's, and Andrew has this, um, he, he can see into the future of what he wants to do in products. Of course, it's all top secret, but I mean, you <laughs> sure. know, and, um, but, but he, he says, no, you can't do that because later on we're going to be doing this. Oh, okay. So then we go in another direction and we're all always thinking of, what are the maximum number of story possibilities? You see, that's what you're doing in D&D. &D. And by the way, those of you out there who are writing your fantasy novels, particularly if there's predestination, you know, and a, and a prophecy, you know, one ring to rule them all. Okay, you better answer for the reader, why now? Ooh, why didn't nice. a group of heroes come along and solve this 200 years ago? Why your people right now while we watch? What is happening right now that makes it possible for the first time to do it now or precipitates the war now or what is it what's the triggering incident why now because if you can answer that then you then i'll know the stakes and i'll be 
gripped by your narrative. Um, and so um, that is something I knew before, but that's something that's being hammered home. <laughs> like Thor a blade Thor's coming hammer. down on my helmet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a hammer coming oh. down on my helmet. Bing! Oh, that's great, Ed. Well, Ed, um, this has been amazing, my friend. I, I really cannot thank you enough for taking the time and being so generous and, um, you know, talking about stuff that happened a long time ago the, with the enthusiasm as if it happened yesterday. Ah, it is fun. This is my life. This is the best. You know, you know, if you if you get to do what you love, then you've won. You know, yeah, and, and I'm doing what I love. So when people say to me, oh, you, you don't have the world. They, they screwed you out of your world. No, I don't care. I really don't care because I'm doing what I want to do. I'm having That's fun. awesome, Ed. You That's know? awesome. I, I, I want enough money to pay the bills so I can go and do it next month. The same oh, that's thing. great. <laughs> that's great. Um, so, uh, guys, we're going to have links to um, everything that Ed talked about. I'm going to have links to his uh, his Amazon list, which is extensive. Um, and uh, and uh, we'll have all that in the show notes. And uh, for those of you that stuck around all the way to the end, I appreciate you listening. Take care. episode subscribe to tabletop talk and share it with your friends check out our content on youtube and twitch follow us on twitter and facebook and stay updated on everything coming from third floor all the links are in the show notes take care floor heads Oh, God, I just realized that I did not ignore the bullets on that. That was, wow. All right, that's sloppiness on my part. I had it titled one thing, and then I changed it to another, and I'm doing it. Don't worry about it. Ignore the bullets. Jeez. Great attention to detail, Shipman. All right. I should be a a writer. (laughs) (laughs) What color were her eyes again? (laughs) All right, I'll bring us back. Wow, Ed, that was awesome. Cool. I can keep rabbiting on at that speed if you want. (laughs) Oh, please, please. That's absolutely fantastic. And it goes to show that no matter how much research I do, there's always something to learn. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Okay. Oh, that's great. And uh, but, you know, you know, it's an author I forget about all the time is Jose Farmer. And man, I had just devoured him as a kid. And I I need to go back to those books. Um, What was it? Was it Riverworld? Yep. Um, yeah. Oh, God, those books. I, when I was like 12, just I mm-hmm. found them randomly uh, when I ran out of Howard to read and just just devoured them. I need to find those again. Those are there's a, there's a saying up here in Canada because uh, hockey is our national game. <laughs> yeah. When is the golden age of hockey? And the answer is when you were 12. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and it, it applies to every sport. It, it applies really to all. Does. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that's funny. You could end almost every internet argument by just saying that out loud. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and make sure you look up Jack Vance. I will. Yeah. Um, I will. Because he, um, the D and D man, the D and D magic system is based on Jack Vance. With his permission, Gary copied it. Because oh, wow. in the di- in the Dying Earth, uh, they started out as Dying Earth short stories, and then grew into novels and so on, and then other authors with jack vance's permission wrote more novels michael shea and so on 
but um, it was the whole idea that you impress a spell into your mind with great effort of study. You memorize it, and the moment you cast it, it's gone out of your mind, which gives your magic user a built-in limitation. He can't fire them right. like a machine gun. Um, you know, and I have those. I have those Dying Earth books, and I have not read them. That's embarrassing. I need to go grab them and and, oh. and, and read those. There are wow. um, there are three things you should read. Well, many things. The Moon Moth, which is a, a novella that won Hugo and Nebula and stuff like that. There's many others. He, he won a lot of them. He wrote mystery stories, um, as John Holbrook thinks. But um, the the Alastor books, which take a different planet, and each book is a, is a standalone novel. Trollian, Alastor 2262, Mask Theory is the only one that doesn't follow that, that naming huh. convention. And uh, Gary Gygax also used the Planet of Adventure Quartet as inspiration for D&D. And there's also two books that I love, which are Showboat World, now has another title, where they, where there are these vast rivers and these showboats of a traveling circus but it's on a showboat it's on a riverboat it's on a right. mississippi riverboat like philipposa farmer yeah, i was just about uh, to say they go from port to port and they have all these adventures and then then of course the dying earth but yeah jack vance because jack vance had mastered this art of Excuse me, I know this is terribly inconvenient before tea, but I find I'm going to have to kill you now. Oh, really? Is that truly necessary? <laughs> Could we not, you know? And they talk like that. It's these, you oh, know, I'm and you just kill yourself up. laughing. Oh, <laughs> and you take I'm that, gonna... yep, plus Moorcock, plus Andre Norton, plus <laughs> J uh, John Jakes, and you just put them all together and go, wow, this is fantasy. And this is fantasy. And Fritz Lieber, right here, Fritz Lieber, excuse me. I mustn't mispronounce his name. <laughs> Fritz will never forgive me, even though he's in his grave. Yeah. <laughs> and Fritz, you know, he's sort of in the middle and has this sense of humor. And, and it was lovely reading all this stuff. Anyway, I should, I, I will wrap it oh. on forever. Oh, this is, this is great stuff. I'm going to bring us back and we'll, um, we'll talk yeah. about kind of where you start to intersect with, um, with Gygax a little bit. But I, I, what I'm thinking is maybe start with you discovering Dungeon and Dragons yourself. Does that sound oh, good? Okay. Sure. That's a great thing to do. Um, awesome. Okay, uh, one of the things the uh, Toronto I was my well, well, hold on one second. I, I'm gonna I'll bring us back from the break, Ed, and then yeah. we'll get we'll get started. Sure. Okay, great. Mm, yeah. Oh, holy cow, my friend! <laughs> you <laughs> are not holding back, and I'm loving it. Oh, there Absolutely you go. No problem. Loving it. <laughs> Hey, I um, have no secrets. <laughs> this is this is really is very kind of you. Ed. This has been really great. Um, all right, so I'm probably I'm going to give you a little bit of an intro, and I'm going to let you take this where you want to go. Um, so oh I'll, I'll lead you off with a question, you and we'll see what happens. How does that sound? That seems to sure. work so far. Great. Okay. Cool. You still here? Wow. Um, well, the episode is over, but if you're bored, why not go to patreon.com and support the show for as little as a dollar a month? Yeah, you can just scroll down. Scroll down and, yeah, get the link. It's Patreon that makes this and all of our other content possible. Don't you want to join the other floorheads on the Patreon Discord? Anyway. Thanks for sticking around.
Take care.